word trajectory itself, so by definition, it refers to a path that something or that someone is on that's in motion. So to have a trajectory assumes that you're going somewhere, that, that there is a sense of, of movement or of motion. And this is a crucial concept for a new church to understand. I mean, today is actually our, our three-month anniversary, so we're 12 weeks old today. Um, and so you might kind of chuckle at that, but, but we're really excited that God has been with us these first few months, and we believe that God has called us to go somewhere, that we have a particular path that we are headed on. And so our focus, our direction as a church, you could say the vision statement for Renewal Church is that we exist to bring God's renewal to Bell County and the world. That's where we're going. We want to spread, to extend his renewal so that people that are far from God can be brought near. So that lost sons and daughters can come home to be with the Father. So that those that are spiritually dead can have life breathed into them. So God's work is renewal. And so that, that is where we're headed is as we preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that people are made new in him. And then by his grace, they will then grow in him and then be released into the world for Jesus. So if we know where we're going, if this is the path that God has called our church to take, the question is, well, how do we ensure that we stay on the path. Because it's one thing to say, oh, I know where I'm going. Yeah, but how do you make sure that you don't get lost along the way? Our core values. See, our set of core values describes what matters the most to this church. And these core values serve as the guardrails that makes sure that as a church that we are following the path that God has called us to follow and not drift off and go off the road and, and crash into a ditch. Because that's the last thing that we want to do as a church. And so our core values, think of it as the guardrails that ensure that we're on God's path. So for the next several weeks, we're going to be in this series called Trajectory, staying on God's path as we're contemplating our church's values. And you just saw them on, on the video, but we value the Bible. We value people. We value being intentional. We value being simple. We value commitment. We value multiplication. We value the gospel. And most of all, we value Jesus. And so we're going to be working through all of these and helping you to better understand what we value, what matters the most to this faith family, and how that begins to shape who we are. Because we are a young church, so concrete's not wet, or that's not true, the concrete's not dry, it's still wet. And so as, as it cures, as it begins to solidify 
we have to have it solidify with these core values of who God has called us to be and how we're going to get there. This is what matters to Renewal Church. And I pray that it individual life as you follow Jesus. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 19. We're going to be in Psalm 19 this morning as we consider the first one that we value the Bible. This is, this is the foundation, is that we value the Bible. Psalm 19, let me give you the theme as, as you look for it. The theme of Psalm 19 is that God speaks. He is not a God who is mute, but he is a God who has a voice and he uses it. He's a God who is communicating and revealing himself to his creation. So Psalm 19 tells us that God speaks, and then it also tells us how God speaks and even why God speaks. So we're going to ask a few questions from this text. So the first question we're going to ask is how? How exactly does God speak to us today? Psalm 19, let's begin with verses 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. It is rising from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. So first, how does God speak? We see in these first six verses of this poem that God speaks through nature. And so what we're seeing in this text here is sometimes called general revelation. So what that means is that God speaks in a general way to all people in all places for all of human history. God has been speaking. God has been revealing himself through his creation. So through nature itself. Verses 1 and 2 say that the heavens declare, so the heavens are speaking. The heavens declare the glory of God. And it says that the sky above proclaims, there's a word again, it's speaking. The heavens are proclaiming his handiwork. So another word for preaching is proclamation. So what I love to do is to proclaim the word of God. And it says in Psalm 1 that nature itself, that all of creation is proclaiming and says that it's his handiwork. And that the day and the night itself reveals knowledge. And so what you're seeing in verses 1 and 2 is it's clearly saying that creation itself is revealing who God is. And then verse 3 says that, that God is revealing through nature, says without words. So nature is not proclaiming with a voice. And yet verse 4 says that creation does have a voice. 
So obviously this is metaphorical language describing how the trees and the canyons and the mountains and the solar system and the oceans and our own bodies that are part of creation, everything that is created without using a voice and yet is declaring that there is a God. And this is not that complex. I know our naturalistic friends, our atheistic, our Darwinian friends, tried to tell us that there's no way to know how the world came into being, but this is nothing more. This whole existence is a result of random time plus chance. No, I understand that that's what the human mind trying to do, but Romans 1 said that it's just suppressing the truth. The truth that every single human being knows art when they see it. We do. When you see a painting and you think, oh, wow, this painting is beautiful. Have you ever thought to yourself, huh, I wonder how this painting with its complexity and its purposeful arrangements of colors and textures, I wonder how this this painting just automatically came into existence by time and chance without a designer. Have you ever thought that? No. When you see a painting, your first thought is, seeing if it's beautiful or not. You're like, oh, this is terrible, or oh, this is beautiful. So first you're recognizing the quality of that art, but then beyond that, you can make other deductions. You can say, well, you know what? An artist made this painting. It's not a stretch. Our minds automatically know. We know that an artist made this painting. And you can also know that that artist loves art. Otherwise, we wouldn't have bothered making it. You can also know his personality, whether it's abstract or otherwise, or a portrait or landscape, is revealing of that author, that artist's personality. And you can then deduce, okay, this artist loves art and took the time and he is committed to his craft. He's committed to art. And he wants others to enjoy his masterpiece. Why else would he bother making the painting? And when you look at all of creation, what you're seeing is, as it says in the Bible, is God's handiwork. God is the ultimate artist. And so when you see all of creation, you can know that there is a designer. He is the creator, the sustainer. He is the ultimate artist who made this with purpose. And it's reflecting his very character. The, the wisdom that is shown, like if you think about calculus or trigonometry and you think, oh, I can't think about that. Well, God invented it. Like he thought of that. Rocket science, God thought of it first. Any science or math or art or anything you can think of, God thought of it. He created the world with it. And then all we're doing is we're just discovering it. We're not making anything. We're, we're discovering what God has already created that is showing that he is all-powerful and that he is all-wise and that he is beautiful and that he is creative and that he delights in his creation. And you can know that 
if we just open our eyes and don't suppress that truth that all of us naturally have. The message of creation that's being proclaimed is about the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. But this this message that nature is speaking is not a downer. It's not a bad message. Have you ever gotten a text message that it just has the words, we need to talk? And then you think, oh, I don't, I don't want to call them. Because you know it's not good, right? Like, if, if, it, if it was good, it would have said more than we need to talk. Or when you get the email from that person, you, you know who they are. And it's in your inbox, and you're like, oh, I don't want to open that message. Like, I don't don't even want to open that email. Because you know what's in there, right? Because you know the character of the person who sent you the email. You know them. You already know that that's going to be a downer, frustrating, discouraging, critical message. And you just brace yourself as you click to open it. Because of the character of who sent it. You already know. You see, the character of God is good. And so you can know that his message is good news. The message that God is sending to you is not a downer. If it were, why would verse 5 describe God's proclamation, the message of nature and of his glory, describes it. Okay, I want you to think about this. I know there's kids in the room, so I will not be graphic. But verse 5 says that it's like a bridegroom, that's a guy who just got married, when he's coming out of his chamber. Why is that so good? He just got married. And he's coming out. Out of his bedroom for the first time. His first time to be with his wife. This is like the happiest day of his life. At least it should be. And so this is described as a joyful, happy, intimate thing. Where God is saying, which is why it points to Jesus as being the groom and we are the bride. And we just sung that one day we will be with him and he is beautiful and we will see him. It's a good news message. Also why verse 6 says that it's like a runner. So an athlete who has been training and loves running. Now, I don't know why you would run. I have a car. But I know a few of you in the room personally who love to run. Okay, I get it. Actually, I don't get it. But I can see that you enjoy running. And people who love running talk about it being addicting. I think donuts are addicting. I don't think running is addicting. But nonetheless, there are people who love to run. Like, they get a high and they love it. They love shopping for the gear and all. They get in, they get geeked out and running. Well, verse 6, guess what? People ran long time ago. And it said that there's joy in it. There's just joy in being a runner who is just out there running and, 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 the, and the wind hitting you and you're just feeling God's presence as you're 
running and described as a joyful thing. A positive, good news, gospel message is what you're seeing in these verses. That God is communicating for our joy. And a creation itself is declared. So how does God speak? He speaks through what he's created. But he doesn't stop there. Verses 7 through 9 describe another way that God speaks. The law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. So God speaks Through the Bible. God speaks through his word. This is oftentimes called special revelation. So general revelation is how God reveals in a general way to all people through creation itself. And then special revelation is how God has in a special, unique way revealed his heart. Revealed how he loves us. In a specific way, with general revelation, you can see that God loves you because he put trees that bear fruit. Okay, that is generous. That is God expressing his love for you. So even general revelation shows that God loves you, but special revelation says, and love's name is Jesus. And he died for you because he loves you to display his glory by taking on your shame and your guilt and paying for it as a lamb of God and then also resurrecting powerfully and offering forgiveness and new life and joy to anyone that will with all of their heart cast themselves on the mercy of God. With all their heart, trust in Jesus. You won't know that by being in nature. You can know that God is wise and beautiful and that he cares about you, but you won't know about Jesus. You won't know about redemption. You won't know about your purpose of enjoying the presence of God for eternity. You won't know that through nature. You know that through God's special revelation in the Bible. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. That is special revelation. That is God speaking through the power of his spirit as we read his word. And what does it say about God's word? How is it described in these three verses? It says, the law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is perfect. Sure, the precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So are you you hearing the way God's word is described as perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, righteous? 
This is the rapid fire from three verses in Psalm 19 describing the Bible. And the New Testament confirms the exact same revelation from God. It says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all of Scripture is inspired, literally breathed through the Spirit of God. And 2 Peter 1.20 20 and 21 describes how that happens. It says, so no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It says, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so the Bible is written by humans. So yes, there were actual men who penned the words of Scripture, but they were carried along by the Spirit. And so what you have in the Bible is a completely infallible, inerrant word of God. It is the complete and the final revelation of God. So from our statement of faith, I'll read this to you. We believe that the Holy Bible was inspired by God, written by men, and is completely free from error. It is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction and reveals the principles by which God will judge us. It includes within it the only way of salvation. It will remain to the end of the world, the supreme standard and final authority by which all matters of life and doctrine should be tested. That is what we believe about the Bible. We value the Bible. So we will treasure the Bible. We will study We will listen to it preached. We will respond to the Bible. And we will submit ourselves to the authority of the Bible. And so as a pastor, there is spiritual leadership and authority, but it only comes if your pastors are under the authority of the Bible. So if you ever have a pastor that is exercising authority and it is outside what the Bible reveals, then that pastor has no authority. Because the only authority, only leadership that we have is if we submit ourselves to God's revealed word. So God speaks. He speaks to us through his word. Next question, why? Why does God speak to us? I mean, why does God bother speaking to us? Think about it. On an average day, when you talk to people, especially if you're at work, but in any context, you talk to someone because you need something. You say, oh, I need you to go do this for me, or can you please get this for me, or don't forget to do this, or You're placing an order for something or following up on a repair for something or whatever it is or making a purchase. I mean, just think in the workplace, trying to get your work done. So much of our conversation that we have on a daily basis has to do with logistics and schedules and just life (laughs) and things that we need to get done. But God doesn't need anything from you or me. He is completely self-sufficient. 
He is completely at peace and joyful. And so God doesn't need us. And so why does God bother speaking to you or me? He speaks to us so that we can be his friends. He speaks to us because he wants a friendship with you and me. We just read verses 7 through 9. Let me remind you what it says in verse 1, that he is declaring, he is revealing who he is for his glory. And then verse 8 It says that the precepts are right and that it rejoices the heart. So it brings joy in the heart. Let me read to you verse 10, that God's word is more to be desired than are are they than gold. Even more than fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. So God's word is more valuable than gold and tastes sweeter than honey. So this is very important for us to understand when we're trying to think about how God wants to have a relationship with you and me. What we're seeing here in verse 10 is that God is better. He is better than your iPhone, believe it or not. He is better than your gaming. He is better than getting all of the upgrades. He's better. He's he's better than your social media account. No matter how many likes or shares you get on your posts, Jesus is better. He is better than that new toy. He is better than that relationship that you hope is going to actually fill you and satisfy you. He is better than that career that you're chasing that is going to just leave you in that hamster wheel until he calls you home, if that's what you're after. He is better than gold and better and sweeter than honey. And so God speaks so that we will worship him. That's why he speaks. He speaks so that we will see him and see his glory. And so that we will treasure him above everything else. He speaks so that we will enjoy him. He speaks because he wants a relationship with you. He speaks because he wants you to be his friend. Now, I know that we all live in a broken world where there are days where you feel unappreciated and disappointed. I know there are people that you think wanted you for a relationship, and then you find out later that they were just trying to use you. Now, don't raise your hand, but I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. When you go into a friendship or something romantic or whatever it is, And you just had such high hopes for that relationship. And then find out later, it is nothing but just heartache. And then what that can do is that can create in us this suspicion. We're always suspicious of churches, suspicious of people, suspicious of, well, what's their angle? And what's their hidden agenda? And what's their ulterior motive? 
I mean, I've already heard that from planting this church. I've, I've heard it more than once on, what's your motive? Why, why, why are you really planting a new church? And I'm like, because I want to reach people for Jesus. No, 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 no. What's your real reason for planting a new church? I'm like, because there are people um, who won't go to traditional churches for whatever reason. And we want them to know that they belong and that we can love them and that they can be made new in Jesus and grow in Jesus and be released into the world for Jesus. And they're like, okay, sure. Because they've been burned before and they assume that I have some ulterior motive. We can all do this. We, we can all, in our pain, in having been hurt, is always questioned. But here's one thing that I can tell you on the authority of God's word is that God has no ulterior motive. God has no hidden agenda. God does not want to use you to then abuse you. He doesn't want to use you to get anything from you. When we talk about God wanting to use you, it's to bless you. It's to live out your purpose for existing. And so when we talk about God wants to use you, it's fill you with joy. It's living in his presence, fulfilling your purpose. So God has no hidden agenda. What he wants from you is your friendship. What he wants from you is your heart. He just wants a relationship. And that is our call with each other, is to, to desire from each other nothing more than the relationship. And, and I can genuinely say whenever I meet someone new, or even someone that's becoming a church member, and they say, well, what do I have to do to now serve? And I'm like, it's not about have to. It's just you get the joy of being part of this faith family using your gifts. The only thing that I want from you is just your friendship. That's generally all that I want from people, and that's God's grace because that's all that we should want from each other because that's what God wants from you. Knowing Knowing God, enjoying him. This is our purpose. If he hadn't spoken, we'd have no hope. And so we value God's word because it leads us to know God himself. It leads us to taste the goodness that is sweeter than honey. And to know that he's more valuable than even gold. And this is the whole point. You're thinking the whole points of what? The whole point of your life, like the whole reason why you're even alive, is so that you can know and enjoy God. So you were made by Jesus, and you were made for Jesus, and are saved by Jesus, sustained by Jesus, and all of this for the praise of his name, that you can find your joy in Jesus. And so how, how, does this, how does this happen? Well, when we, when we spend time quietly in God's presence and we are thinking about him and about the word that we're reading and then you're pouring out your heart to him and just sharing your deepest struggles or fears and you're just talking to God. He talks to you through his word and through his spirit and then you can talk back to him in prayer Man, we just we sense his presence and it's life changing. We're living out our purpose. 
When was the last time that you were not close to your best friend? Now, if you're married, I hope that's your spouse. When was the last time that maybe you were not close to him or her and they were on either vacation or spouse, maybe he was on or she was on a business trip or whatever, but, but you were separated? And you find yourself wanting to talk to, the, to him or her, and so maybe you do phone calls or, or maybe, I don't know, text message or, or email, probably not email, but whatever you would do to kind of stay in touch whenever you're far away from each other. And I mean, I know for me, whenever Bonnie and I are apart, whenever I hear her voice on the phone, it just stirs my heart, and I just want to be with her, and I realize, man, how much I've missed her whenever she's away or when I'm away. And it just creates this fondness because friendship cannot be fully enjoyed when you are apart. You can't. And so friendship can only be fully enjoyed when you are together, when you are close, when you can see each other and you can be in each other's presence, which is why when you're talking to your wife and she's far away and you're talking to her and you say, man, I can't wait to see you. Is that what we say? Or do we say, man, I can't wait to smell you. Like, we don't, we don't usually say that. Or, I can't wait to hear you. Well, I'm hearing you now on the phone. Like, I, I hear you now. What, what brings joy is seeing that person. Which is why the Bible describes that faith comes by hearing. It activates our faith and our longing for Jesus, but the goal is seeing him. Which is why one day when we're in heaven and we fall before Jesus and we see him with our very eyes, face to face, It'll be the the fulfillment of all of our deepest longings. Your heart aches. And I know sometimes you think it aches for other things, but at your deepest core, you were made for Jesus. And so those aches that you're turning to other things for, you're turning to unhealthy or immoral or addictive things or other unhealthy patterns, things that you're turning to in your soul's ache, at its core, what your soul is aching for is Jesus, which is why when it turns to other things, it doesn't satisfy. It leaves you just more addicted and more hungry, more thirsty and needing more because you weren't made for those things. You were made for Jesus. And so one day when we are resurrected and we are on the new earth and we are praising a resurrected king and we see him, that is the culmination of our purpose. It's why we exist to see him and to enjoy him for eternity. Until that day comes, we keep hearing from him and we keep talking to him and keep telling Jesus, I miss you. I can't wait to see you. Every day, continuing the conversation with him as he speaks through his word, as we speak through prayer. And the Spirit makes all of this possible. We are living out our purpose. The purpose of the Bible is for us to know and enjoy God. 
It's not for information. If that's what you think, then you're in the wrong place. The Bible is about knowing and enjoying God, not an academic pursuit, not loving the body of knowledge that is Christianity or of theology. The point is to know and to truly enjoy Jesus. That is the purpose of the Bible, and the Bible is enough. I need you to know this. If you're visiting here, just kind of checking out this church plant, is that the Bible is enough. We don't have to have a a production to try to entertain anyone, and we don't need 20-minute sermons. We need the Bible. We need to feed our souls from the Word Sunday morning and then throughout the week, every day, in your home group. This is our life. Without it, we die. We need to feed our souls, and the Bible is enough. So we need to hear his voice as we walk with him, just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, walking with God, hearing his voice, and talking to him. This is our purpose. Last question, what happens? What happens to us when we're hearing God's voice and we're walking with him? So what is the result of this living communion, this living relationship with living Christ, what happens to us? We just read it. It says in verse 7, that it revives the soul. It says it makes a simple-minded wise. It says it rejoices the heart, enlightens our eyes, leads us to be clean before God. It transforms us. What happens? Well, our hearts are changed. That's what happens to us when we walk with God and hear his voice. It changes our desires. And verse 11 is a warning that we would not drift away from him. Moreover, by them, the word is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So keeping the word, there's a reward. And he warns us to not drift away because that leads to all kinds of heartache. And in verses 12 and 13, say, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So he has a rhetorical question in verse 12. He says, who can discern, who can understand his errors? The answer is no one. None of us can fully understand our motives, why we do what we do. I mean, look, we... We can be so broken at times that we don't even have enough self-awareness to even know exactly why we do what we do. And we can have patterns and habits that can be for years where it becomes so normal that we don't even realize that we have unhealthy patterns. So the psalmist here, David, is saying, God, protect me from my hidden faults. Reveal them to me. Give me the awareness so that I even know what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. This is so huge to know, to be aware, to ask God to reveal that to us. But then verse 13, verse 13 rather, has a different problem. He says presumptuous sin. You know what presumptuous means? It means arrogant. It means proud. So presumptuous sin refers to sin 
that you know is sin. It's not hidden. You're aware. So you're going into it knowing that it's sin, but you do it anyway. So the hidden faults would be like if you're walking and there's like a trap door, but you didn't see it and you fall in. Okay, that's, that would be hidden sin. Presumptuous sin is like you're walking towards a burning building. And you see the flames, and you know it's burning, but you think, oh, I really want to go in there. Like, I want to go hang out in that building. And you're like, yeah, but there's flames. Maybe I shouldn't go in there. You think, no, I really want to go in there anyway. I won't stay long. And you go in anyway. That's presumptuous sin. So what we're seeing here. It's that God wants to change us. And maybe you're thinking, well, I want to change. I don't want to give in to that kind of sin. I want to walk with God. I want to hear his voice. I want to love the Bible. How do I do that? Let's read verse 14 as we wrap up. Finish the verse. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. There's a key word there that says the meditation of my heart. Meditation is focused thinking. It's spending time thinking about the word, thinking about what you're reading. And so the way this works is you would read a verse or verses, and then you stop and you think about what you're reading. You meditate, and then that leads you into your prayer. And so oftentimes our prayers are dry or empty or not satisfying and feel disconnected from Bible reading. Ever, ever been there? Yes, we all have. Well, how do you make the Bible reading and the prayer vibrant? Well, meditation is a connection. Meditation is what connects Bible reading and prayer. So you read the word, and then you think, you meditate on it. You spend time even journaling about it. You spend time slowly thinking about what you're reading, and then that will lead you into your prayer time. So if you were in these verses, if you were in verse 14, it says, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So my rock, so you begin to think, what does my rock mean? Well, that it's stable. My rock means that it's reliable and it's not movable. So you think, okay, God, have I been anxious? Have I been worried about something? And think, oh, yes, I have been. And so, okay, so then you start to meditate on, okay, God, you are my rock. And you start to pray, God, you are my rock. And then you put whatever that is in your hand, God's hands, or you pray for other people that God will be their rock. And so all of a sudden, that phrase becomes a means to pray for what's in your soul and praying for others. And so now, most people, when you, when you try to pray, maybe you can pray for two or three minutes, but then you're like, now what do I pray for? Now what do I do? Well, let the Word guide your prayer as you meditate on it. And it will transform how you pray. And freedom comes when our hearts are so changed that we want to obey. Slavery is when you're supposed to and you don't want to do it. Now, that's slavish. But when your heart is changed and you want to, that's freedom. So being saved means walking with God, being called into a fellowship with God. 
and it's possible because he has spoken. Praise God that he speaks. And the word speaks life and freedom and fulfillment of purpose and joy. We value the Bible because it leads us to know God himself.